from the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is The Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm visiting today with Dr. Ellen Wagner, an award-winning learning technology professional who has worked as a tenured professor and academic affairs administrator, a senior executive in commercial software companies, as an entrepreneur and consultant, and as a board member. She has more than 30 years of success in education, ed tech, software, public policy, higher ed, and that also includes with nonprofit organizations. Her broad areas of domain expertise include change management, emerging technologies, instructional systems design, learning engineering, curriculum development and learning management, as well as online and e-learning knowledge management, lots of stuff, many domains of expertise. There's much more to say about your background, Ellen, but I'm Grateful to have you with us today. Welcome to The Learning Circle. Well, thank you, Anthony. It's wonderful to be here today. Very excited to talk to you about this. Now, asking some of my colleagues, I've been saying, hey, what do you know about learning engineering? Learning engineering was part of that litany I just went through of your areas of expertise. And we're going to take a deeper dive today because it's an emerging thing. And I think it's being defined right now. So it's a great time to talk about it and bring it to the awareness of this audience. But back to talking with my colleagues, many of them don't have a firm grasp on what it is. They're guessing at what they think it might be, but they don't have a formal definition in their mind. So this is going to be great for a lot of sophisticated folks in the L&D world who this is going to be a new one on them as well. So with that said, I just by way of introduction to start to wrap our arms around it and set the table I wanted to say that we live in a world today of many emerging technologies. We've got apps and dashboards and tracking and measurement and analytics, all these things we're hearing about. We're hearing lots about data, 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 data. So there's a technical side to modern learning that's just growing and it's also growing in complexity. And we're bringing to bear things like computer and data science in a much bigger way. We're bringing that to bear upon our learning sciences. Now, at the same time, a lot of these human fundamentals of learning, the theories and the principles and the pedagogy of what we call the learning science aspect of it, some of that changes. A lot of it are principles that don't change that rapidly, but we realize that we suddenly have many disciplines that have to be brought together if we're going to execute some of this complex stuff that we're hearing about, whether it's AI or adaptive or the other things I named beforehand. So it sounds to me, and this is a longish way of getting to my first question, Ellen, that we're at an intersection, you might say. It's kind of a crossing of all these disciplines in what we're calling learning engineering. Is that a fair approach to defining it? And I just wonder if you could take us deeper into what learning engineering is and what it is not. Well, after you bet I can. In fact, I've been, I've been smiling. I was smiling a little bit as you were reading some of the things in my introduction because, you know, I, I never started out to be any of those things, you know, the change management person or the shining example of anything. What, I, what I've been for these years is somebody working in 
learning technologies and performance improvement. And as we all know, anybody working in this field, we have been buffeted with emerging technologies pretty much every time we turn around. So simply by being a survivor in this space, I have had to learn how to manage all of those new emerging things over the years. And, you know, frankly, as someone who's still standing, you learn to be a change management expert if you want to continue to stand. And it's really within that context that all any one of us working in the field had to learn how to deal with computer-based training or internet-based training or online learning or mobile learning or now learning to deal with data. Because if you didn't learn how to deal with the condition of the time, you died, metaphorically speaking, of course. So even now as we're turning to things like learning engineering, I think you you explained the reason why we're moving in this direction beautifully as you were getting ready to ask me why we're going there. The fact that here in 2020, as we've been working up to this point, you know, I'm fairly certain there will be people listening to this podcast who can remember back in the days when we had the luxury of setting up a server under our desk and we could pretty much manage whatever type of learning-based networking we needed to do on our own without having to worry about a lot of the connectivity issues that we have to worry about today. These days, if you expect to do any type of technology-mediated learning or performance support, the idea of imagining that you could do it on your own in a broadcast model is naive and foolish. So, you know, my whole point in bringing us back to that sort of baseline understanding is that Learning engineering is really just a recognition that for many of us working in any type of a learning setting in this era, that there is going to be some type of a technology mediation involved in whatever it is that we do. It doesn't mean that the technology is deciding for us what it is that we do. It just means that, like it or not, it is very likely that we will engage in network something or other, platform something or other, mobile device something or other, as we go about the design and the construction and the distribution and the evaluation of our learning designs, right? Exactly. So thinking about the fact that it is inextricably connected to our work simply as a function of the worlds in which we live. And the other piece of something we will not ever be able to escape is that these types of platforms create data almost as a matter of the exhaust of the systems that we now deploy. You know, no judgment in that. When we make a keystroke, there is a record of that. Well, it would really be foolish for us to not take advantage of the fact that the things that we do, in fact, are available for us to see what it is that we've done to see if there are ways of improving what we've been doing and to see if in fact we might be able to come up with better ways of doing what we've done by looking at our patterns. That's pretty exciting. Now, a lot of us who have been designers in the past probably don't have the deep type of skills that you're going to want to have to do that type of work, the type of data analysis or the type of network management or the type of standards-based considerations that you need if you really want to stack multiple networks together 
and make them work securely and reliably. You know, many of us who are really focused on learning designs, you know, most of us don't have those skills. But that certainly doesn't mean that we can't make them available to our practices. And this is why we find ourselves in this time, in this era, turning toward professionals, colleagues, who may in fact be able to provide that type of expertise in the work that we're doing. So I'm going to take a deep breath and give you a chance to ask me a little bit more about that. Well, I love how you brought us back to provide a little bit of perspective. You know, you go back 25 years ago or so and dealing with terms like CBT and relatively comparatively quainter times that didn't foresee Maybe the futurists foresaw it, but they were very different than the idea of ecosystems and the the kind of infrastructure where we're talking about ecosystems populated with not just with LMSs, but other platforms and layers of social media and many, many things that now require orchestration and a lot of technical knowledge to execute. So what I think learning engineering, what I'm beginning to understand about it is that it's an attempt to bring together, really bring together the team that's required to execute modern solutions. The learning scientist is going to be more steeped in the theory and practice of learning. I'm, I'm oversimplifying where the engineers are folks who have spent more of their time in the computer sciences, the data sciences and so we're we're bringing those concerns they overlap as they work together there's kind of a little Venn diagram where we can picture them overlapping and where they might know quite a bit about each other's concerns but they've got to work together and they've got to supplement one another so i'm just trying to paint that kind of complementary set of disciplines i wonder if you could build on that ellen oh oh sure well you know depending on who you talk to you will find folks coming from more, I, you know, I, I have to say, I'm actually going to back up a little bit here. Instructional designers will tell you that they have been doing the type of work that learning engineers tell us they're going to do. You know, they've been doing this for, you know, 60, 70 years. And they're right. They have been. Um, learning experience designers are now gently telling us that, you know, that they are the next generation of instructional design. And, oh, by the way, have you seen that? Stanford Design School design thinking model. That's pretty cool stuff. And you know, every time I every time I hear somebody say that, a little instructional design angel dies somewhere. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's um, and I'm saying that with with love and affection for all of us who are trying to figure out how to do this work together. It's what's what's been interesting for me is that we actually have multiple disciplines that are now contributing to a much bigger conversation because in the old days, instructional designers were in fact the ones and still are the ones in job title that pushed this together. But the instructional design that I might have learned, you know, 40 years ago is now a combination of, you know, the cognitive sciences. I was actually, I was actually an educational psychologist that specialized in instructional design back in the day. So every time I now hear people saying, well, you know, you have to have learning science in it. It's like, well, of course, designers have always had learning sciences as a part of this work. You couldn't do it otherwise. But what we didn't have at the time were the were the degree of computing or certainly the degree of, of, of uh, data in it. The other thing we didn't have were issues related to learning experience design, because when we were doing much of this early work, 
the idea of working in web-supported experiences hadn't even started yet. You know, I guess really my point here is that for those of us who want good learning that takes place with tech, there has to be more than just a desire for a design to work. The tech really has to respond to a learning outcome as well, but the tech has to be reliable and it needs to be solid standards-based ability to to be shared, to, to not break down. You know, so many things about the reliability of the tech, um, you know, we, we take these things for granted now in many cases. You know, those of us that sort of lived through early days of tech reliability, oh my gosh, um, you, know, you used to pray to make sure that your demos, well, Maybe we always still pray that our demos work online, don't we? Anyway, I digress. I digress. <laughs> That's absolutely true. There's always the worry of failure and the need for contingencies. We're getting, just as an aside, we're getting much more interested in things like VILT, virtual training and you know, that's an arena where you had better have a plan B and a C because if you serve one element one way and maybe it fails on that server location, you might need an, another backup solution so that you can get through the class material. That's right. So, yeah, more than ever, we need that. But I think what you were saying earlier, I think also in the scheme of learning engineering and this blend of disciplines – it's a way of saying that more than ever, we need each other. We need each other as practitioners. We can't be always the deepest data expert while being the deepest learning scientist. You had asked me about a definition of learning engineering, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't forget to provide you with one, that the IEEE Learning Engineering Group, ICICLE, has developed because it is one that I think takes a learning engineering perspective uh, that I'd like to share. It's, it's one that says that we are a process and practice that applies to learning sciences using human-centered engineering design methodologies and data-informed decision-making to support learners and their development. It's still fairly loose, and I think personally, that we need to be testing some assertions about what these things really mean. Nevertheless, I think the idea of focusing on learning sciences is key because there need to be empirical foundations really looking at what learning is, performance per improvement that persists over time and, and can be demonstrated as a, as a permanent type of shift. I mean, you know, that, that matters. The idea that there are engineering-based design methodologies at play, which are different than what we might find in non-engineering environments. And I think that the distinction between well, what's engineering and what's not is something that really needs to be part of an ongoing discussion because engineering methodologies are distinct. Engineering is a distinct discipline and practice. And I don't think that we in ICICLE have really done a clear job on defining what engineering methodologies are. And for educators, many of whom are involved in this type of work, I think we need that type of, of knowledge and awareness because I think when we don't know it, we default to what educators have always done. And I think we need to know what engineering models are so that we can do a better job on integrating that. And then ultimately, this data-informed decision-making Yes, many of us in education have been researchers, and some of us are pretty good doing the mathematical analyses of research. Nevertheless, I'm not certain that 
Many of us use data-informed decision-making as a regular part of our practice in the same way that scientists do. And so I think that this is a place where there is much room for immediate shifts in practice, where we can start actually doing you know, more use of what I would call small internal experiments in some of our work, to start looking at measuring things um, in the workflow, not waiting until the very end and then saying that we've run out of time, for example. Yes. So we're really in search of, a, a, first of all, a more robust definition. We need to know more about engineering and data. I wanted to ask you on the point of data. It seems like the promise of data is that it gives us a more evidence-based footing. It allows us to really put the E back in that old systems model of ADDIE. Yes where we analyze, design, develop, implement, and evaluate. We can more iteratively look at what we've done, look at performance, see what the data is saying about things. And it really helps us to enlarge that E, where sometimes it has been uh, hard to discern even being there. But these kinds of tools are very, very helpful to us now. You know, one of the dirty little secrets of instructional design has always been that the E in Addy has always been a fairly small E. And there are lots of reasons, I would even call them excuses for that. One of the biggest one being, oh, you know, our client never pays us to do evaluations, so we can't. And I think, you know, for those of us inside the tent of instructional design, we all kind of roll our eyes because, you know, yes, that's probably true. But the reality is that design as a problem-solving methodology at its very heart simply cannot be performed if you're not continually evaluating the work that you do. So this notion that designers would dismiss doing continual formative evaluation as they're constructing a design, you know, when you really get down to the brass tacks of it, it's it's a, it's sort of a sad statement on our own practice that we've allowed ourselves to to shift away from recognizing that evaluation of our own work is a core responsibility of designers. One of the things I like The piece about learning engineering that I think I have gravitated toward probably most of all is the recognition that with small, even small data in the workflow of our design efforts, we are in a position to do continual formative evaluation of our design workflows to do improvements as a function of our design work, not as an entire separate stage of our work. And You know, when I've said this to, um, I have actually worked with quite a number of instructional design professors in this effort because I wanted us to to not just do superficial sort of looking at our practice, but to really go back to those of us who have been writing and teaching people how to do this and challenge ourselves on what we can do. And the idea of doing continuous evaluation is kind of a scary proposition for those of us who've always thought about this as a point-in-time activity usually at the end, usually when we run out of time. But for me, this one challenges us. And I love this one because it's going to call us on our on our own, well, dare I say, our own BS. And, and, and there I said it. 
Yeah, that's okay. You've sufficiently censored yourself with that. Um, but it also seems to play into agile concepts, which are very important these days. This idea of doing a little bit of something and then taking a look at what you've got. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, that's and, right. And all the benefits that flow from it, the the kind of trust that accrues to the customer and stakeholder relationship and obviously the learners. It's, I mean, it seems really what we're after, you know, you strip away all this impressive sounding talk about all the technology and the engineering stuff. We're just after better learning and performance outcomes. And we're just trying to use the new tools to help us see that more clearly and to to achieve it. That's right. Because at the end of the day, when you do analysis, if you're dealing, say, with learning analytics, that's math. The ability to apply math to come up with the right answer is more a function of strategic application of that math in context. Because you can come up with an answer. It just doesn't mean that it's the right answer for what you need to know and do at a particular time. And this is one of those things that when we're trying to use data in these types of settings, you know, it's, it's, the, it's not like magic eight ball where the right answer is simply going to pop up at you and you can say, oh, okay, I'm good to go. It's, it's going to take the professionals who can look at these things in context, which is why the engineering part of this is so important. Let me ask you about data. When we look at data, there's so much data that we can get our hands on, so many variables, so many factors that combine to tell certain stories from which we can infer things and tell stories about what's happening in our learning. But it seems to me there's a point at which you can be capturing way too much data and having to store it and this kind of this idea of boiling the ocean just to get the cup of information that you want. I, I wonder if you could help us understand what does it look like, the, this kind of data collection? What are some examples of what it means in a learning context like this? What usually happens with data stores for analysis like this is that much of the data you might be likely to use already exists somewhere in your enterprise in a data warehouse. You know, it's collected by other people because there might be lots of platforms that that collect information, as you said. It exists everywhere. So I wouldn't just start necessarily with where's the data, although you have to kind of have it in the back of your mind. I think what people forget about is that you have to have a question in mind that you want to answer or a set of questions that you want to answer. Because if you don't start with a stake in the ground of what you're looking for, you will be you will be buried in data that doesn't matter. And you will be able to swirl yourself with analyses that will tell you all kinds of cool stuff, but it might not answer your question. You gotta close the aperture and focus the question, right? You absolutely do, because if you don't know what you're looking for, you're never gonna find it. So my advice to anyone is before you worry about what data should you collect, the types of things you should really start with, what are the types of things you need to know? Because if you really focus on what your key types of 
things you need to know are, then it's a lot easier to focus on the types of records that might be useful for you to look for. And I say look for because, as I mentioned before we started talking, it is very likely that much of the information you could use for answering questions is already being stored. And it's typically stored in something your enterprise would call a data warehouse, in which case what you do is you request a file download that gives you access to data resources that are specific for the kinds of things you want to ask about. So the thing that people forget is that with all the data that's collected by companies, you would never, ever, ever, ever try to go through all of it. You try to focus yourself on the types of data sources that are really germane to what you need to ask about. So that I just mentioned that to some of you who have wondered just how this actually works. It, it works by trying to really narrow the scope of what you have to go through because if you had to do, it's not as much like looking for the needle through the haystack as you might think it is. I mean, it kind of still is, but you really must narrow your field of questioning because it's really easy to get lost. And frankly, that's what happens to a lot of data projects. They do get lost because it's, you know, and it, it, frankly, it's really fun to ask a lot of questions. But that's one of the things that business analysts and research analysts really have to be careful about because you're there to you're there to answer questions. Right. You can get lost in the query part of it. Well, this is why, you know, for any one of us that ever took a basic research class and they always worried, they, they always told you to be really careful about data mining. The fact that it is so easy to do data mining, and in fact, many of us do it because you can find really interesting things. But if you are trying to answer questions, again, just just be mindful of what it is you're trying to get done. And if you are trying to answer questions, just answer your questions. How many factors or variables are you looking for typically when you're trying to answer a particular question? Oh, gosh. My joke answer to you is it depends on the quality of your data analysts uh, because you can get really sophisticated analysis. You know, I was involved in a fairly complex data project a number of years ago where instead of trying to do hundreds and hundreds of variables, we really tried to limit the variables we looked at just to make our tasks easier. And we were able to build pretty sophisticated predictive models to find students at risk of dropping out of college. And we were using only about 70 different variables that were available in student information systems to build the models. So you can do a pretty good job without having tons of variables. But at the same time, if you want to do some of the work with deep learning or different types of AI modeling, you can you can do more than that. I mean, again, it, it really depends on how sophisticated you want to get. I'm going to tell you that most of the work that many of us do in learning and development is not doing big data because, you know, anything related to big data typically can't be contained in spreadsheets. And most of our learning data continues to be the size of files that can be contained in spreadsheets. So, that also means that our methods are typically not going to be big data methods. That means it's still going to be somewhat more related to inferential types of research, but that's changing rapidly. So, you know, just be mindful that analytics work can, can cost a lot of money. And 
So again, this is another reason why you want to be mindful of what you're trying to accomplish. You know, if you don't need to have a, a really expensive data science team in your organization, you know, or if you want to have one, let me let me restate that. If you want to have a really expensive data science team in your organization because you think you can develop a really good opportunity for yourselves, I, that's awesome. But it will cost money, and you might want to make sure that you can rationalize the expense. Yeah, is this a way of advising to keep it simple if you can? I think the more specific advice is to keep it relevant. Keep it relevant. Okay, which is a way of focusing it so you just are looking to the pertinent data. Well, that's right. And if that means you know, as simple is always good. Relevance is always best. Okay. I appreciate that. I'm not a data scientist. I only play one on TV. So uh, I, I appreciate those answers. So, Ellen, speaking about the data, this kind of leads me to a question I had wanted to ask you about, you know, we're letting a lot of genies out of the bottle with a lot of this technology and, and data. Is there a downside to the approaches to learning engineering or, or any ethical concerns? I want to get your thoughts on that consideration. You know, there are concerns that have been expressed in some quarters about the emphasis on data related to privacy and ethical issues. There is an education writer by the name of Audrey Waters. I think Audrey does really interesting, interesting work. I mean, she she wants to hold educational technology industry accountable related to products that really don't address the issues that students need to have addressed. Audrey made a point in a blog post that she wrote last summer about reflecting on learning engineering, and she made a comment about how learning engineers are the agents of surveillance capitalism. And I thought that was a little harsh. On the other hand, from someone whose perspective is looking at ed tech companies as entities that really are after students' data that threatens privacy and that there are true ethical concerns about student surveillance in classrooms or student surveillance on campus or using student GPS systems to keep track of where they are, I can really appreciate the concerns, especially for people who are not technologically focused as so many of us are. You know, we leave behind keystrokes. It tells us what we've been doing. You know, the use of that type of transactional data is something that I think many of us have been getting used to. There has been a shift in the use of data where now, you know, like things like Instagram or Facebook, there is a mining of experiential data to anticipate what we might want to be doing. And then this is where the, the placement of ads for things we might want to do or what type of vacations we might want to take or where we might want to go to school. This is the type of thing that is making some people really uncomfortable, that if our personal data is being used in more than transactional ways, in these experiential ways, then we've got some real problems ahead. And of course, people who are looking at the ethics of this for educational development have, you know, they've got some real points that are true. So in fact, as much as I found myself bristling at the notion of, well, I don't think I'm an agent of surveillance capitalism, the reality is that for people dealing with data systems, we all have to be mindful that if we can use these types of systems to 
not only predict where people might be headed, but to prescribe treatments to help them do things in different ways than they might have otherwise. Whether that is good or bad, the reality is that if we are prescribing treatments for individuals based on data patterns, we need to be pretty careful about what we're doing, despite the fact that it might be coming from a complete pure place. Now, you know, in medicine, if someone could help me with health issues and anticipate cures for diseases that will make me get better faster, I think that's pretty awesome. If someone can help find, and I'm going to be a little flippant here, but find the world, you know, the cure for world stupidity through data, I kind of think that's sort of awesome too. But I realize that when it comes to things like education and learning, that my cure might be different than someone else's cure. My pathway to finding those quote-unquote cures are going to be really different because education is one of the most culturally bound constructs we have. So being mindful is something that any one of us who works with data is going to have to develop. And being mindful is something that I don't know that we have the right bumpers around what that means yet. So, yeah, I think that this is a huge issue. What about just plain privacy? Is it a foregone conclusion that you're leaving digital footprints and that's just fair game, that you're leaving a trail? Or is this something that organizations have to think about in terms of what they record and capture? Anybody who engages in any digital exchange of any kind is probably let the privacy cat out of the bag to some degree. Most of us opt in one way or the other when we start engaging on platforms. I, you know, I don't know if you saw the recent Facebook recently announced the offline sort of privacy notion and people were all very angry at Facebook again because, you know, look at all this extra data that they're scooping up. But I noticed when I went out to look at what this was that all of the sites that were linked to Facebook are places that individual users must accept the cookies from those sites. So in fact, people have agreed to link to all the sites that they're getting mad at Facebook for aggregating the data for. So it's just one of those things that it's really easy to get mad that we don't have much privacy yet, but we forget how complicit we are because we want to use these services. And so, you know, do we have much privacy? Well, I know personally I do my best to try to disconnect if I don't want to share. But the fact that I continue to have an online profile suggests that, in the words of my mother, just remember that the whole world is watching Ellen. <laughs> and, 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 and be mindful. <laughs> That's right. You know, so... There's also the arena of just good judgment and, you know, what you're going to do with it, like good form and good decision making as how to wield these things. And my thoughts are going to an article I read recently by Seth Godin, and it was on the idea of mass personalization, which I think ties pretty well to what you were saying a little bit earlier about how with the machine learning and, and how we are, these things are predictive and you're kind of trying to sprinkle the right rose petals in the path of people predicting what consumer choices they're likely to make and things like that. But Godin's point with all that is that there is kind of like an uncanny valley, to borrow that gaming term, where 
you know that you're being played or it's not really real and you can tend to over tailor and overdo that type of constant referral engine and the creepy feeling that someone's been watching you in your bedroom to know <laughs> all this information. So it, it, I think yeah. that is, again, in that arena of good judgment, good taste, good form, another happy medium or balance that we're going to have to arrive at. Agreed. And also be willing to come up with ways that recognizing that maybe you're in my experience with this type of data overreach is okay, but maybe it's not so okay if you come from a community where this type of reaching into your community has consequences that maybe you and I don't necessarily experience. And being aware that once you start tapping into things that reach across communities that the openness of, of, of where I online goes is different than it used to be before we were all online. So, you know, the impact of some of these decisions is much broader than it may have been before we were so widely connected as we are today. So mindfulness is one of those words that it can sound like, like you're just sort of wiping things away. Being hyper-aware, but being focused towards some type of actionability so that now that we know we have opened Pandora's box of both opportunities, good and maybe not so good, is to consider consequences and to be willing to step up to modifications if we discover that, you know, maybe we hadn't anticipated all the things that were going to happen from what we had done. And there you discover right here in this conversation why it is I had to become an expert in change. Because it's like, holy moly, we didn't think that was going to happen. What are we going to do about that? And you quickly learn how to you know, be flexible, watch what you're doing, keep records, go back, you know, to do postmortems of projects where you have to see what you did so that you, if something great happened, you could repeat it. And if something bad happened, you never do it again. And on and on and on. Yeah, managing unforeseen or unintended consequences. Yep, that's exactly right. So in a good scenario where we are being mindful and we're avoiding overreach and whatever shade side to this is that we, we just want to avoid, what do you want learning engineering to be when it grows up? And what do you think it should be in service to? My hope is that learning engineering is a part of the tool set, the professional tool set that learning and development professionals have available to them to make sure that when when we are supporting, when we are working to make sure that we can make a difference in people's learning lives, that we can do the best possible job we can. And, you know, as someone who has been a, a learning technologist for a long time, making sure that learning technology, that it's not just about the technology, but it's like learning technology together, that we actually realize the vision that has been held by so many of us that, you know, that we can extend our capacity with technology. That was never supposed to be a replacement. It was never supposed to, you know, be in lieu of effective learning support, but, you know, help us leap taller buildings and and maybe faster than speeding bullets and all that other stuff. That for me is, you know, being able to 
realize the promises that this has always offered for so many of us. It's, it's kept us sort of trying to see if we can crack the code. That, for me, is, is, is what I'm hoping for. Yeah, I mentioned it earlier, again, keeping our eye on the ball, the fundamental one, it's better learning and performance outcomes. And these are just tools. That's absolutely right. That's really excellent, Ellen. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of something very big. But if we were looking to learn more about learning engineering, what sources would you point us to? Sure, sure. There's a lot of a lot of interest in learning engineering these days. I think you can find a number of articles that have been published by Learning Solutions magazine. And the eLearning Guild has published a primer that I put together for them last May. You can also find a number of resources on the Icicle website. This is uh, IEEEicicle.org. Those are all capital letters, I-E-E-E-icicle.org. And you will be able to go onto the website and find a lot of information about learning engineering there. You will also be able to find, if you were to search on the University of Florida has a learning engineering newsletter that they've recently started to publish, and a number of other organizations are starting to explore learning engineering just because they're curious. Of course, MIT has had a number of initiatives going on related to learning engineering. And of course, the Simon Project at Carnegie Mellon University has been a new project which is focused on learning engineering. I should I should tell you all that... Simon is sort of the granddaddy of all this. Is that not right? That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, I was going to tell you all that Herb Simon, who was at Carnegie Mellon University, was the first person to talk about the importance of learning engineering. And he actually did it back in the 1960s talking about a learning engineer as somebody who should be a partner to a university president because learning engineers would be someone who could provide technical expertise to presidents who are usually very brilliant subject matter experts but are not typically administrators and that the engineer would be somebody who could provide them with the type of support required for everything from project management to data analysis to budget support. So the fact that the Simon Simon Initiative at Carnegie Mellon is an excellent resource for talking about how to put these types of engineering practices together, and in fact, to really start looking at the measurement of ongoing work in practice. There's some real great examples there on the Carnegie Mellon Simon Project page. So hopefully that can get people started. Outstanding. Ellen, thank you so much. And by the way, where can we keep up with you and your work? I know you write articles. Where can we find them? Of late, I have been posting most of the recent work on my LinkedIn page. So if you go to Ellen D. Wagner LinkedIn, you should be able to find them in that little section right toward the front where you are allowed to post the things you're doing. I've just been trying to put things there. It seems to be the easiest place for people to find stuff. Fantastic. Ellen, thank you so much. I think you're really helping us to wrap our collective heads around this topic. It's a big topic, and it touches so many things. Here at DAU, we're looking at AI and adaptive and many bleeding-edge things and, and how data feeds into it and all the engineering feats of strength that have to go along with it. So very grateful that you could illuminate the subject a little bit better for us. Well, you're quite welcome. I appreciate you having the time to talk about it. It's, um, I'm looking forward to 
getting past the point of the talking and what's been exciting for me is to discover that, you know, most people who are doing the work have stopped talking about it and they're just getting the work done. It's those of us who are trying to sort of decide what to call the work that are the ones who are wrestling with it. And so that makes me happy that those of us who get work done typically just get the work done. So I just sort of smile and, and I'm, you know, I'm getting to the point where I want to watch what they're doing and call it what they're calling it. So that's going to be my secret on this is that we don't have to come up with the standard first and then try to make people sort of set our expectations for it. Go out and see what the work is and then sort of wrap, wrap your arms around the workers and then call it what the people doing it call it. I mean, that's the easiest way, right? Exactly. It sounds like you're at the get on with it moment. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. I've been in, I've been in commercial product development for too long. If you, if you waste your time, you miss your moment. So there you go. That's right. <laughs> Ellen, thank you so much. Hope to have you back one day. This has been a thrill to have you and so helpful. Thank you again for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. I so appreciate the opportunity and I wish you a great day and um, thanks again for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University. 